Welcome to the Product Podcast by Product School. Here's a preview of today's talk. The next thing is decision making. So here, there's something called the Rice Model, and I'm not sure if people are familiar with that. But basically, what this is, is that now that we've kind of gone through our whole discovery phase and we have a bunch of ideas, prioritization is something that tends to be an issue. So the Rice Model is really kind of like a mathematical model for people who like something more concrete than like, I want to go with my gut. This is something that will help you measure um, or really define the trade-offs across these four areas. So reach, impact, confidence, um, and effort. So really what that means is that if I have two features or I have maybe two products that I'm debating which one is better, which one which one should I use? What the Rice Model does, it puts math behind the decision. So again, like the numbers could be a little bit subjective, but if you're the type of person who wants to do a little bit more than going with your gut, it's a good way to do that. In this podcast, we teach our listeners valuable lessons about product management and transform them into thinking like a product manager. We teach product management, coding, data analytics, and blockchain in 14 campuses worldwide, including San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. You can find more information at productschool.com. Join our Slack community of 25,000 professionals to network and stay tuned for our upcoming events. So, what are we talking about today? Like I said, we're talking tools, tips, and tricks for product research and development. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about is the discovery and research process. And really what that means is that no one should know the problem space better than you. And really how you do that is through um, both primary and secondary research. Um, so primary research, everyone kind of knows the whole like, let's do some user interviews and work through our design thinking process. Um, and that's really great and that's usually where you start. Um, but one thing that I will say is don't fall into the trap of only doing user research. Um, and that's because really your users can only tell you so much. Um, then there's a piece a lot of the time to the process that you cannot learn from your users. And you'll have to do some more secondary research. So things that your user might need that they don't know about, um, things that will supplement the process, always do your secondary research. And really one thing, um, just going back to the primary research with your um, user interviews and stuff like that, one thing that really helps me is doing building really good personas so very getting very crisp on who the person is that you're solving for. Um, and there's various ways of going about that, whether that's like full immersion into their process. Again, you can do user interviews, um, research on what that role looks like or what that person likes. So things, again, that they're not necessarily going to tell you, but that you can find out about them. So building a good persona to understand who the person is that you're solving for will be that first step in understanding what the solution is that they need. Um, the second thing is building a user script, uh, sorry, an interview script. So one thing that I like to do in my user scripts is making sure that they're very um, directed. And what I mean by that is making sure that you always have an objective when you're leading some sort of user interview. So when I do my interviews, and I have a, an example here, I make sure that I always have a set of objectives for my interview. And really what that means is 
what am I trying to get out of this interview so that when I go in there, I know that I come out with the information that I need. So this is just like a mock-up of like something super scrappy that you can put together in a Google Sheet or an Excel file. And then in the, the first column, you'll see I have my objectives. So I usually start with anywhere between three and five objectives for an interview. Generally, no more than that because you can't get that much done in, if you have 12 objectives for a meeting. Um, I like to keep my user interviews to an hour or less because you're not putting this person on trial, like you shouldn't be sitting there forever. Um, so really three to five objectives is as much as you're going to get out of someone in one meeting. Um, so the next column over you'll see my questions. So once I figure out what I'm trying to get out of this person or this interview, I come up with questions. And really my questions are, what can I ask this person that will give me the answer to my objective without just flat out asking them? whatever I have for that first objective. So usually maybe, again, three to five questions per objective. And again, yes. just different ways of asking things that will get me to that answer without just asking them that question. So those are typically how I structure my um, user interview scripts. And then again, like in the comment section, I'll write down whatever it is that they say. And I might not leave it in this format, but this is at least how I start to make sure that I'm putting together a user script that will yield me something of value. And I'm not just going blindly into a meeting and asking them questions and then coming out and feeling like I don't have the information that I needed. So uh, the next thing uh, for discovery um, in research is doing cross-team synthesis and co-design. So this is something that I really believe in, is that getting your entire team involved in the synthesis process is really going to help for several reasons. So I did one of these maybe a couple weeks ago, um, and I had my engineers, we don't have a designer right now, but the designer would have been there, and then I had some key stakeholders in the meeting. And really the reason for that is twofold. The first is making sure that everyone shares the same knowledge. If I go into all the user interviews and I do all of them, and then I go to my engineers and say, okay, this is what we're gonna build, they don't share that same context that I do about what the problem is that we're solving. So by having the entire team in these interviews, oh, sorry, in the, well, having them in the interviews is good, but if they can't be there, having them in the synthesis where everyone is looking at all the data, everyone is parsing things out, and everyone is able to come up with a solution, when we go to write user stories or however you do your development, everyone understands why we're doing that thing. And it's not me preaching to them and begging them to do something and they don't understand why. Um, the second thing is co-design. So, what happens here is now that we've done our synthesis, what are some ideas that we can put on paper and everyone can contribute to the new design of whatever it is that we're doing. So this again is something super scrappy, like get some printer paper and some Sharpies and just go for it. It doesn't have to be anything high fidelity, it really just needs to get your point across. And again, in doing this, everyone on the team shares that same knowledge and everyone is able to contribute to the design process. So those are two things for um, the discovery perspective that I like to use. Um, the next thing is decision making. So here, there's something called the Rice Model, and I'm not sure if people are familiar with that. But basically, what this is, is that now that we've kind of gone through our whole discovery phase and we have a bunch of ideas, prioritization is something that tends to be an issue. So the Rice Model is really kind of like a mathematical model for people who like something more concrete than like, I want to go with my gut. 
this is something that will help you measure um, or really define the trade-offs across these four areas. So reach, impact, confidence, um, and effort. So really what that means is that if I have two features or I have maybe two products that I'm debating which one is better, which one which one should I use? What the Rice model does, it puts math behind the decision. So again, like the numbers could be a little bit subjective, but if you're the type of person who wants to do a little bit more than going with your gut, it's a good way to do that. And what it does, it applies metrics to each of these um, areas and then uses that to determine like whichever is the highest value is really the, the product or feature that you should be working on. So just an example, if something has like a very broad reach, is high impact and you're relatively confident in the solution, and the effort is minimal, you probably should do it over something of the inverse. So that's kind of how the rice model works, and I typically use it when there are two features or two designs where I'm like, oh, I'm not really sure which one I should go with, or I kind of feel like I know which one. This is a good way to put some math behind it, so if that's kind of how you like to work and you prefer using numbers and putting numbers behind something, then this is the model that I would recommend that you try out. But yeah, this is something that if you look it up, I didn't put the actual model up here, because. We don't really want to get into that. But it's something that you can do again, like in a Google Sheet, and just throw the numbers in there, put in your estimates of what each of these things are, and see how the numbers come out. Um, the next thing is card sorting. So this is a nice way to put the decision making back on your user. So well, the way card sorting works is if you have several features and you're not sure which one you want to build first, you put them all, write them on index cards, for example, and you present them to your user and say, you decide which is most important to you. And once they reorder them, that kind of gives you an idea of what their priorities are, and you can build out from there. So there are several tools um, that work pretty well for this. Um, Optimal Workshop is actually an, on it's an online tool that's meant for card sorting. Um, if you don't want to go that route and you already use Trello, Trello works really nicely for this as well. Um, both, again, tools that you can very easily move things around, and this is a good way to do it if your user is not sitting in front of you and you can't present them with the index cards. This is a good way of going about it instead. Um, then another area is development. So again, I'm not a developer by any stretch of my imagination, even though sometimes I like to think that I am. But one thing that I do like to do is have some sort of influence and some sort of involvement in the development process. So design dev pairing is something that I learned a couple years ago and actually did it today with my developers. And um, really how that works is if there's a feature for which maybe you're not very sure on how it should be implemented, you know that you need it, but you're not sure how it should be implemented, maybe you don't want to spend a lot of time designing it because you're not really sure how it's going to look anyway. Um, but you do, you do know that it needs to be done. So this is a good opportunity to sit down with your developers and rather than writing out a whole user story for it, just sit there and talk about it. So what we did um, with my team today was uh, three of my engineers and myself sat in front of a large monitor. We talked through the problem and really what we were trying to solve is how do we enable a user um, to get access to the system. If we're um, assigning people access and assigning people roles, like what is the best way to do that? And I could put a design together, and in theory it could work or it could not, and rather than sitting there wasting time putting it together, what we did, we just sat in front of the computer and did it together. So I find that this works really well in situations where things are a bit vague, and you don't really know how they should be implemented, it's nice. And the other thing that it does, it allows you to understand how much work goes into 
uh, developing something. So if I'm sitting next to the engineer as they're doing this, I can really understand how much time it's taking them to do this feature and whether that's really worth the time. In the inverse, as a developer, they understand what I'm thinking, what I'm trying to get done, and maybe they can propose to me a different solution for what I'm asking because we had that conversation. So this is something that I am always asking my developers, like, hey, do you want to pair on that? Do you want to pair on that? And sometimes they're like, no, I got it. But it is something that's good. And today they asked for the pairing, and I think it worked really well in just working through what is the issue, what are the solutions that we could do, and then we did it right there. We tested it, did it work, did it not. Um, and once we were able to do that, we pushed it, and it was done. I didn't have to write a story for it, they didn't have to read the story, and we still got the feature done. So I really like design um, dev pairing, and I would recommend that if you have the opportunity to use it, you should try it out. Um, the next thing that I will say, this is some bonus points, this is not required, um, but one thing that I think is really good to have as a, uh, some good skills to have as a product manager is having some design skills and having some development skills. So again, I told you I'm not an engineer at all, but I think you should be intelligent in that space. And again, if I'm asking them to, to build a feature, I should know generally how long that's going to take and how much effort I'm asking of them. Because if I'm asking of them something that's not really worth all of that effort, but I don't realize that, that, if that hinders that process. So being intelligent as an engineer, again, you don't have to write a line of code ever, but you should have a general idea of this thing that I'm asking them is probably going to take a week, versus this thing that I'm asking them might take six weeks. And is that six weeks really worth it to me for this product? The other thing is being dangerous as a designer. So like I said, I don't have a designer on my team right now, but I like to think that I can design. And the thing about this, again, is understanding how the product is going to be received by a person. What does that experience look like? and how will someone go through your process. So again, you don't have to be a designer, but you should understand, maybe I need a tooltip here for someone because they're not going to understand it. This is not intuitive enough for them to figure out what's going on here, so maybe I need a tooltip here. Again, I don't have to design that, but in my mind, I'm designing the experience that someone is going through. So that's um, the whole idea of being dangerous as a designer and intelligent as an engineer. Um, so the last thing that I want to go through um, is some tools that I found are really useful just generally throughout the process. So designkit.org is a website by IDEO and what that has is literally everything that you could ever want um, for methods on um, discovery and implementation. So if you want to learn more about how to do some of these things, whether it's card sorting or whether it's prototyping. Um, design thinking, they have a lot of these very short clips of telling you what the thing is for and how to use it in your process. So this is something that I would highly recommend for just discovery phase, is going to that website and just looking through the different ideas of how to go through the discovery process. Um, they do a really good job of explaining things and explaining situations in which you can use them. Um, Real-time boards. So for people whose teams are not co-located, because we can't have that in the ideal world, it's not always how things work. So real-time board is a nice way of whiteboarding virtually. So sometimes we have these whiteboarding sessions, and if you're the person who's on video chat, it really sucks for you because you're probably not participating. Um, so real-time board is a nice way to have an online or virtual whiteboard where everyone can get involved and no one has to be necessarily in the room. You can still do all the same things that you would do on a whiteboard, but it's actually nice because everyone can contribute to the whiteboard at the same time, so it's not just one person writing and everyone else watching. 
Um, so that's a really nice way of getting the entire team involved in some of these whiteboarding sessions where everyone can't be there in person. Um, Silverback and Silkbox. So these are some of my favorites. Um, and really what this is for is really great for screen recording for usability testing. So Silverback um, is like a step above Soapbox and basically what Soapbox does, it, or what both of them do, is they um, record both ways. So they will record, if you're interviewing a person, your whoever, in person, um, it will record the person's face and it will record the screen. So if you're going back and reviewing the recording, you can see what they were doing as they were speaking. It's also a nice way to understand Maybe if I wasn't actually looking at the person during the interview, if they were saying one thing but their facial expression is showing something else, what the really nice, it nicely highlights those discrepancies. So that's Soapbox, and the thing that um, Silverback does one step ahead of that is that it highlights the screen clicks. So where a Soapbox just records the screen, Silverback will highlight where they clicked on the screen. So if they clicked on something several times, my screen will highlight where they were clicking so I can understand that they were trying to click on something and for whatever reason either it didn't work because it was just a prototype or they were confused. I can see what they, like literally what they were doing on the screen. So that's the nicer thing about Silverback. It costs about $40, whereas Soapbox is free, so you can weigh your pros and cons there, highlighting on the screen versus not. If you have enjoyed the episode so far, check out our upcoming live events at productschool.com slash events. Use the promo code PRODUCTPODCAST in all caps to get a free ticket to the next event in your city. Um, and then the last thing, there's literally nothing that Post-it Notes and Sharpies can't solve. Um, I walk around with Post-it Notes and Sharpies like in my backpack. You can check my bag now. There's probably some in there. And the thing with that is like they're very good for really all the things. Um, if you're, I use them a lot for synthesis sessions. If we're doing um, affinity mapping, they're great for that. It's great for just jotting down like these side things. So again, like we can go crazy with all the tools, but like at the end of the day, like if you just get post-it notes and some sharpies, like you're probably going to be good, or at least get like halfway there. Um, so those are some of the tools that I like to use uh, for various states of the process. Um, and then the last thing, um, one final disclaimer um, to add on to my previous disclaimer, um, is that the tools and tips and all the things that I just told you, it's, it's highly dependent on your organizational structure. So you can take back all of these things that I just talked about, but if your org does not support it, none of this is gonna work. So my recommendation really is to figure out what your org is going to support, if they, how do you guys work, how do they intend for you guys to work, and then you choose your tools accordingly. You can't choose the tools and like jam them into the process because I mean, maybe Post-it Notes and Sharpies will work, but a lot of these other things will not work. Um, if you're, the way in which you're working doesn't support that. So really figure out how you guys are working first and then choose a tool or working style or process that nicely complements that rather than just choosing, tool, choosing tools randomly and not getting the value that you need out of them because you can't use them effectively. Um, so that's really all I had today. Um. A, do you have a lot of experience of just interacting with the PM role across different types of companies? And the follow-on to that is how similar or how different 
or what are the similarities and differences you've noticed? What, sorry, what was the first part of your question? Have you had experience in, look, in comparing the PM like product management across oh. different companies? Um, yeah, so I think, again, going back to the last slide that I had, it's really what your organization supports. So yes, I could have the product management title at various companies, but how the organization sees that role is could be very different. Um, I think there are areas where you'll have more freedom to do things, there are areas, there are companies where you have less freedom to do things, and I, again, I think that's just a nature of the company's culture, rather than the actual role, um, and how your company develops products. So, yes, I've seen it done differently, and yes, I've had very different experiences with the same title in different places. Can you share more, just from your experience? Um, just a, the, the general differences? Yeah. Um, so I think now I have probably uh, more freedom to make larger decisions um, and there's more trust in the people to make those large decisions. Like each team where I am, so at Pluralsight right now, each team is an autonomous team, like actually legitimately autonomous team. So your, your tool does not depend on anybody else's tool, or your, sorry, your piece of the product does not depend on anybody else's piece of the product. Um, I don't have to go and get approval to do things, like I just do them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the structure or the nature of the company that I work in and also the industry. Again, I worked in financial services before. Like I can't just make a decision about like $15 billion and just be like, oh, look, whatever, it's fine. Like that's, it's a very different industry and it's a very different product that I'm delivering. Like if I get something wrong now, with the decision that I make, it might have a little bit less of an impact. Like, if I don't get my user onboarding fully correct, it probably has a little bit less impact. If I do my calculation wrong on $15 billion, someone's probably going to be pissed. So I think it depends on where you are, what you're working on, what the product is, and then the culture of the company or organization in which you are, which will depend on how you can work and how your teams are structured. Again, like my team now, it's a cross-functional team, so it's me, a designer, developers, I have a DevOps engineer and an architect. Other companies will have product by themselves, engineering, like I have to go like find some engineers, and like DevOps is over here, and maybe I'll have an architect, maybe I won't, but right now I have all of those people on my team, and we do everything together. So again, like it just kind of, varies based on the company or the industry. Okay. Uh, yeah, pretty interesting. So, um, when you're using the rice method, uh, you know, depending on the size and age of the product, there's always engineering debt, or mm -hmm. often engineering debt. Mm -hmm. And some features are just, let's get rid of the engineering debt. So other features are, they may contribute and build upon engineering debt make it worse and how do you take that into account and there's probably different answers for different times so how do you yeah so I guess there I can give you two answers to that um, one practice that we try to implement that we may or may not do so well at sticking to is spending about a quarter of our time on every week on tech debt 
just to minimize getting to the end of whatever, and now I have this boatload of stuff that I, I can say, like, do I spend all my time on tech debt and then don't deliver new, like, new features, or do I kind of just, like, leave it there and say, like, nothing totally blew up, so I'll just keep going. So one thing that, that our engineers have tried to stick to is doing about a quarter of their week's worth of work on tech debt. That doesn't always happen because we get really excited about new features and we're like, no, um, so again, I think it goes back to there has to be some sort of balance from the product side to say like, I'm willing to take the hit on delivering this new feature for another week or so, so that we can minimize the amount of tech debt that we're piling up over here. So again, like, what is the value, the short and long term value of doing this tech debt? No one likes to do it, but kind of have to. So um, from a product perspective, I like to just keep an eye on it, but from a development perspective, they have tried to commit to doing a quarter for the their weeks on. So a uh, question regarding uh, design dev pairing. Um, you mentioned kind of like at the end of that, you almost have it built and you can kind of set it out the door. How does that work in terms of uh, producing good code? Like, are you finding there's issues with people going back and optimizing later, or just kind of like, it's prototype code, get it out the door, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so that was probably like more of today's example and not necessarily you can always do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it depends on at what point you're coming in to do that pairing. So if it would, basically how we started today, he had already done the work and was like, I'm not. I'm at a point now where I'm not really sure how to continue, like finalize the implementation of this. So that's when I came in, and the team kind of brainstormed around, like, how do we get over the finish line with this mm -hmm. thing? Like, do we need to take some stuff out? So we like took some stuff out, added some stuff in, moved things around, and then it was almost done already. So we kind of we were able to ship it. Now, if it were something where we had like a blank page, we're like, well, so I have this idea. We might not want to ship that. And there are certain things that you can just get on the page just to give you an idea of, okay, now that I see it, mm -hmm. maybe that's not what I want. Or like, yeah, I think we're getting somewhere. Let's build on this. Yeah. So it's really a matter of not building out necessarily the whole whatever it is, uh, more of just like, let me get to that next step. Um, or get past this thing that's blocking me or I'm confused on. So in today's example, if you were so close to the finish line, you could just push it in, or finish it and ship it. Mm -hmm. That's not always the case, but it's really a more of a matter of this thing is vague to me, it's blocking me from continuing, help me get over that uh, And kind of a follow-up to this, I assume you guys are probably working some flavor of agile method. How are you accounting for that during grooming and planning? I'm assuming just slightly larger story points to account for that time? So we actually don't do any pointing at all. Okay. Um, we follow some flavor of lean. So we plan every week, but it's not necessarily a sprint. It's more of just like, what do we, what are we going to do this week? Mm -hmm. um, so we don't point anything. We kind of just plan the week around the level of work that we have to get done. Um, so that's largely led by the engineer, like the tech lead will, will kind of wrap it. It's literally in a Google Doc, it's not in anything fancy. And it's more of like, what did we do last week? What did we not finish last week? What are coming priorities? Let's plan. Um, so that's really how we do that. So things like this weren't necessarily planned, 
Um, sometimes they can be, and then saying, like, you know, I know that this thing is coming up. I'm going to need your help on it. Can you just keep that in the back of your mind that I, at some point I'm going to tap you and say, hey, are you getting here with me on this thing? So it's not always planned. Today wasn't planned at all. They were just like, hey, do you have time later? I want to work on this. But sometimes at the beginning of the week, we'll know that whatever the thing is is kind of vague and we potentially will need to pair on it, whether it's designed to pair or like more just engineering pair. Thank you. It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, based on your slides, that your primary customer are the course content creators, and then they would have a primary customer of the learners themselves. Do you take responsibility for collecting feedback from the learners and refer that to the product or to the uh, content creators, or assist the creators with collecting that information from the learners? Mm. Um. So I guess it depends on what the learner feedback is. If it's something very specific to the content that they receive, like I have nothing to do with the actual content, but if it's like how the content was delivered to them and saying like, I don't understand this multiple choice question, I don't know, like that's still a content thing. Um, it would have to be something very specific to how the, the material was delivered to them rather than what the actual material was, where I would get involved if it was feedback from the learner. Um, I do provide feedback, like I facilitate getting the feedback from the learner to the content creator, but I don't really deal with the learner and whatever they're, like that's a whole separate team. Um, do you use any software to manage the allocation of resources and to or or aspects of a project to different team members? Uh, do you use like Microsoft Project or some online tool like Asana? Nope. No. So we because the team is like a collective unit. We, like I, that's the only thing you're working on is our product. So everyone on my team is only focused on our product. So we don't really have anything else to be working on except our product. So there's really no, nothing to manage. But how do you do scheduling of how long it'll take and, and um, I don't know how complex your projects are, but. So how long the future development will take? Is that? Or if you were doing a major portion of, of a project that takes three months. Mm -hmm. You know, do you would you use anything to help map out the time scales and and chart out when things needed to be done? Um, not really. It's a very much like a fluid process. So from like a product management, there's no tools that I use to say like I use Microsoft Project to say you know together my game chart like we that way. Nope. Um, but I do do planning. Uh, one thing that my team has started doing is like a six-week plan for development to say like this is where we know that we need to go. What do we think we'll get done every week for the next six weeks? And we kind of plan that on a rolling basis. So like every month we'll revisit the six-week plan and kind of see where we are and where we're, what we have left. Um, but there's no real like real planning. Um, from a product management perspective, I do have like a long-term, like an 18-month plan, like vision for where I want the product to go, but that's like on a sheet of paper. I don't actually use a tool for that. But again, that's a function of 
where I work and how we work. We don't do like my manager comes to me and says, like, you have three months to finish this feature and your budget is blah, blah. It doesn't work that way. Um, I tell my manager what I'm going to be working on for the next three months. And he understands that because I'm closer to the product than he is, like, okay, do that. And if it, as long as it's not totally divergent from like our company's vision and where we're going, you're generally not going to get pushed back because they understand that if there's, again, what I said before, no one should know the problem space better than you, so my manager is not going to be more capable of telling me what the problem is than I am. So, no, we don't really do planning in that way, but again, that's just kind of a function of generally how we work. Yes? So, you mentioned a moment ago um, that you don't do points or anything like that, and actually piggybacking on uh, his comment about, you know, kind of the, the large-scale planning. Like, how do you how do you gauge how, like, your engineers are, are doing, you know? Like, so, in a lot of, like, you know, older traditional environments, you know, you're, there's metrics and there's, there's some way to gauge, like, okay, you know, hey, last sprint we, you know, we, develop this many points and then the next one whatever and we show maybe a line chart to see how we're doing so how would you how do you handle that kind of situation to say like you know how, how are we doing yeah so it's kind of it's a little subjective to say like how we're doing um, it's more reflective so we do a lot of like retros and look back like what did we get accomplished and I think the downfall of not measuring it in a more like concrete way is that sometimes you lose track of the things that you did accomplish. So, so at times I feel like we didn't do anything, guys. Like we've had this thing going for the last three weeks and I've seen the same thing over and over and we didn't get anything done. And it's not until I have to do like a demo that I'm like, oh wow, there actually like are a lot of features in here. So there is, I think that's the downfall and not measuring it more closely. Um, again, it's kind of just like a pulse check to say like, what are we, what have we been getting done? Um, how quickly are we releasing things? So we do release things as often as possible. So we could be pushing multiple features per day or really whenever they make sense. Um, we use LeanKit just to put the work that needs to be done, so like the small tasks that needs to be done up. So I mean, you can watch the LeanKit board, but again, it's just like, well, how many cards are in the done column? Okay, it's kind of subjective but it kind of works for us. So I think there is a pitfall and there's no real way to measure concretely how much you've done in X amount of time except for like looking at the cards that you have done and um, actually going back and accusing the product and realizing what the features are. So there's no good answer to that, I guess. Yes? Could you speak to OKRs and how the company uses those to measure progress? Sure. Um, so we just started with OKRs. Um, and it's, I think it kind of goes both ways in that it's good to set um, a goal and say, like, by the end of this quarter, I want to accomplish X. This is my objective for the quarter. I think one of the things that we've run into with OKRs is that one, we all think that we're way better than we really are and can achieve more than we can. And then we get to the end of the quarter and we're like, well, all of these were really lofty goals and we didn't get any of them done. But you did make progress towards whatever that end goal was. So I think um, the implementation of OKRs helps you reflect on the quarter 
to say, okay, we didn't achieve this lofty goal, but we did get these other 27 things done. Um, so that's one good way that we can go back and look. But I think one thing, one, again, downfall of the OKRs is that um, each quarter, people feel like they need to refresh and to start focusing on a new goal. And you still have all these things that you didn't finish. So it's like, well, do I roll over my goal? Or do I like set a new one? Like, how does that work? So we're still like, it's still kind of like a fine dance that we're trying to figure out of like, how do I roll over a goal? How do I have like a six month goal? And is that okay for OKRs? And I just keep rolling over, but my metrics and tracking changes over time. So OKRs is something that we recently implemented um, we are still trying to work through some of those kinks, but it is, again, that's a good way to look back on the quarter and see, I didn't get everything done, but the point of OKRs is not to get everything done, so it's another way to look at it. So about interviews, uh, what type of people do you interview, like uh, users, potential users, and how do you approach them? Um, so for this product specifically, I have both internal and external users, so depending on what problem I'm trying to solve or what thing I'm trying to test will determine who I talk to. Um, I have the unique um, benefit of having a really close relationship with my external users, so whereas if I were Google, I'm just going and like scanning the earth for whoever responds to my inquiry, like, do you want to do testing? Um, I can reach out to the user base and they will be very responsive and they're like, please pick me, please pick me, I want to work with you guys. So I think of all of the product teams, I probably have it the easiest as far as reaching out to external people, like the learner team, probably not so much because they actually have to go source these um, learners, whereas my external users are still relatively close to the company, so it's good. Um, so again, it just kind of depends on what problem I'm trying to solve, which will determine who I reach out to. Thanks for listening to the Product Podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to know more about our courses and next courts, visit productschool.com. Stay tuned for the next episode to learn more about the secrets in product management.